Sunday, I got a, an opportunity. Uh, a friend said, uh, when, when would I ever have a chance to meet Charlie Kirk? And I said, gosh, if, if ever he's in town, I don't know. I, I, I said, um, you know, we're really connecting now that we're working together. And um, I, I said, I don't know. So I picked up the phone right after that conversation. I said, Charlie, you ever going to come out to California? He said, yeah, I'm going to be there for Fox News. Um, and I'll be there this weekend. I said, what are you doing Sunday? He goes, uh, nothing until the evening. And I said, um, you, 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 you want to come and speak? He's like, really? I mean, you would have me? I, I mean, I, I'm not a preacher. I go, do you love God? He says, yes, I do. Do you believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? He says, yes. I said, you qualify. So, <laughs> so uh, some people have no idea who Charlie Kirk is. Uh, there's 250,000 members plus uh, of this organization called Turning Point USA. Uh, Charlie, yeah, amen. There's over 1,300 chapters across the country on high school and college campuses. Um, in Turning Point USA, I think 50 million views a week. It's just remarkable. And he's reaching the younger generation. And what's fascinating about Charlie is he's, he's 25 years old. Tomorrow he turns 26. Now, he, and soon he'll qualify for Sunshiners. But anyways... <laughs> Uh, I, I have followed him through my children who said, Dad, this guy is, is like you, but he's speaking to a younger audience. And honestly, at 55, I feel like I, I, I may not be able to reach the next generation. And then I see a guy like Charlie, and I moved. And I started to look at his videos, and serendipitously, God crossed our paths through a number of different events around the country, and he knitted our hearts together. And uh, when Michelle had the privilege to meet Erica, who is uh, Charlie's friend, who's a girl, girlfriend, and we're going to wait for an announcement sometime soon. No pressure. Okay, where were we? <laughs> Immediately, Erica and Michelle hit it off. And um, as we've been working with Liberty to put together a program that you'll hear more about later, um, it, it was as though Charlie and Erica and uh, myself and Michelle had known each other forever, and they are precious. Charlie loves the Lord. His organization is a secular organization, but he never fails to present the gospel on every campus. He's contending for the culture. He's been threatened. He's, uh, it, if you've ever seen any of the videos, he's, he's a, he operates in such a civil manner. He's a precious human being, and I am just honored to call him my friend, and now he is going to share with you. So would you welcome warmly Charlie Kirk. I think I did, yeah. Thank you. Hello. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. This is uh, such a blessing to be here. Hello, everybody. Um, not always when I walk into audiences do I get standing ovations, especially on college campuses. That's a, quite, a, uh, quite unusual. So thank you all for welcoming me so warmly. I, uh, I'm originally from Illinois, born and raised. The fun thing about being from Illinois is we have term limits in Illinois. Uh, it's different than most states. It's one term in office, one term in jail. So uh, <laughs> when we ask for our governor's cell number, we actually mean his... Um, Cell number. My, uh, my grandmother was a lifelong uh, Republican from the north side of Chicago. She passed away in the mid-1990s, and she's been voting Democrat ever since. So um, <laughs> to give you an idea of where I come from. So as, as 
If you think California is going in the wrong direction, at least you have days without clouds. We have to deal with all the same problems. And yeah, um, anyway, it's, it's wonderful to be here. I, I do, I fight for the culture every single day on high school and college campuses. I visit college campuses so you don't have to. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite a struggle. I'm gonna share with you what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, some of the root causes of it. Uh, the most important thing in my life is uh, being a Christian and it is harder than ever to express these values and express these ideas on college campuses. It's increasingly hostile to these, uh, to our worldview, uh, to the Bible. I'm going to talk about that and just what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, and kind of how everyone in this room can play a role in that. So I first want to start and speak about the fastest growing religion in America. The fastest growing religion is not Christianity. It's not Islam. The fastest growing religion is atheism. Atheism is a religion, it has a core set of beliefs, and I dream of a day that Christians will go forth and evangelize with the same sort of commitment and fervor that atheists do. Atheists go forth into the world with more conviction, with more uh, energy than the typical Christian does. Now there's great organizations, there's great people that go out and evangelize, but for whatever puzzling reason, and I think I'm starting to figure it out, atheists, and for those that just so we're clear on what an atheist is, it's them self-declaring that there is no God, there is no creator, there is no omniscient, omnipotent, higher power, that we are nothing more than a clump of cells, that we are nothing more than the matter of which you can just see right in front of you. What a dark worldview. Let's just start with that. What a dark existence and a dark worldview. So, I go to these college campuses, I visit over 60 a year, our organization is on over 14 high school and co- 1,400 high school and college campuses, we have over 150 people on staff, so we encounter this a lot. And so as I go to these campuses and I see these atheists with these tables and they're going and they're trying to persuade students, I always start with the question which is, why does it matter so much to you? You got only a couple years left or 20 or 30 years left, go live it up, what does it matter what I believe? If you are correct, what's the sense of urgency? And for them, they believe that they need to make the world more atheist because that would make the world more moral. They think that a Judeo-Christian worldview or a Christian worldview is what is the root of a lot of evil in our world. What a, it, it, takes a, it takes a doctorate degree from a college to believe something as twisted as that. I mean, there's no way that you could logically come to that assumption. Um, and so th- there, there's a couple things, and I think that This is one of the root causes of our culture and in our country, which is the rise of atheism and the rise of an individual declaring themselves the most important thing in the world. And so I will meet far more self-described atheists than self-described Christians on a college campus. And so I try to come at it with a happy, you know, warrior type attitude and with whimsy. And so we have the good news to share. They're sharing terrible news. So think about it. They're going out with, with huge energy. I mean, they'll staff these tables, the American Atheist Association on these campuses. They'll be out there for 12 hours or 14 hours trying to spread misery. I mean, their message is that there is no afterlife, there is no mercy, there is no forgiveness. Come join us so you could be miserable alongside us. There's that old adage, misery loves company. My goodness, is that explain the American atheist well. And so the first thing that I say, I do talk about, I ask them because it's just puzzling to me. Like if you're correct and you really believe you're correct, go live it up. Doesn't, you don't need companions in your own miserable existence, but it's not enough for that for them alone. 
this really drives them nuts, but I say it anyway. It's a good starter, I think. Uh, without God, there would be no atheists, so that really gets them, you know, uh, it's a really good, good icebreaker, and that, that really is, is good. Um, they, they find great question with that. So what the, the beginning of all this is for 16, 17, 18, and 19-year-olds especially, it's a very attractive worldview because essentially it gives you a hall pass and it gives you a license to do whatever you want to do, however you want to do it. If there's no higher power, if there's no accountability, then you become the most important person in the world. You can drink what you want to drink, you can go where you want to go, you can act how you want to act. Your parents are nothing more than another clump of cells, so they don't really matter either. You have become God. You are the deity that matters most. And you start to see this, and you pair that up with the declining direction of our culture, it starts to make a lot of sense. And so the most important question that someone can ask an atheist is, do you hope you're wrong? It's the most important question. So I asked a student a question that at University of Nevada, Reno last week, and it can go one of two ways, obviously a yes or no question. They typically don't answer it yes or no. They have some sort of swerving way to go about it. But the two most binary way you can interpret it is, okay, if they hope that they are correct, they want to be right more than what is good. So they want to be correct more than what might not be best for the world. So they want, they want to be, they want to show themselves to be super, essentially, proven to be right more than an afterlife, mercy, forgiveness, seeing your loved ones after you die. So the most important thing in their world is winning the argument, not what is good. That's a very, it's a very, that sort of, that sort of existence is a very, very miserable one when you play it out to its furthest extension. So instead of saying, hey, would you want to eventually believe that there's a God that forgives us and that there's, you know, all of this has some sort of rhyme or reason? No, no, no. I don't want to believe in any of that. I hope I'm right. But if an atheist says, no, I hope I'm wrong, well, then we just have a disagreement of what actually, how you actually came to that conclusion. At least there's a willingness and an openness and a curiosity. I do want to make a very key distinction. There's a difference between atheists and agnostics. There's a really big difference between the two. Agnosticism, people are still open-minded. They are searching. They, they have doubt. That's, that's a respectable posi position given the confusion in our, in our country. It's an incorrect position. However, I have, I have more respect for at least someone who says, I don't know, versus that I know 100% there is nothing in the world, and I will go forth and spread my nothingness throughout the all nations. Which is, it's quite an interest. It's a little different than the charge given to Peter. Very different, but go forth and make disciples of darkness. Like, it's just bizarre. The, the, the greatest thing Satan ever did was convince the world he didn't exist. It's, it gives people a license to be able to, to indulge in that sort of behavior with any sort of thought of repercussion whatsoever. My greatest argument against atheism, and it's a very simple argument, is I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So we as Christians get attacked of by saying we live in blind faith. That's one of the biggest accusations that young Christians have to encounter. However, I would make the, very, I'd make the rational and the logical argument that believing in, an, in a creator 
for the physics that we have discovered, the biochemistry we know to be true, the mathematics that put our whole world together. Math is the language that God gave us to make sense of a chaotic and disorderly world. I mean, math is the one universal thing that ties all of humanity together, whether it's how we build buildings, how we can all meet at the same time, all that comes to a common denominator, but we're supposed to believe this is all an act of randomness. So if you accept the atheist worldview, which is the predominant worldview that is taught to our students, and it's not just taught to our students, it's instructed to our students, is that if you don't accept this, you are somehow less intelligent, less rational, and incorrect about the issues and the, and, the, and, the, and the worldview. I don't have enough faith to believe that everything that we know to be true is an act of randomness. In fact, I think it takes more faith to believe that everything that we see, the beauty and the struggle, even the earth's position to the sun, all of this is just by chance. Well, you have way more faith than I do. I mean, we have a text, we have historical documentation and verification. You, you have way more of a leap of faith to try to rely on, to try to believe, to prove in nothing. I'm also kind of always puzzled by someone who describes themselves by something they don't believe in. So, for example, I don't go around saying I'm a Santa Clausian or I'm an a Bigfoot guy or I, I don't. People that describe themselves from the negative, I always find to be rather puzzling. And so... As this culture begins to, as we've seen this over the last 20, 30 years, it's very easy to sell a bigger government and an erosion of individual freedom and liberty when people no longer believe in a higher power. It's a lot easier to do that because the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. People, human beings still need some form of meaning. Human beings still need something to connect to. So if you disconnect a human being from searching for God, they're going to try to find that in government or in the state or in some other artificial temple that is built. It could be Hollywood. It could be any, any, anywhere else. And so people are still searching for that higher meaning and they're looking for it in all the wrong places. And so students especially that I, that I encounter if you play out the atheist worldview to its logical extent, it's, it creates very unhappy and miserable people because they are sold a false promise that you can find meaning and you can find comfort in you being the most important person in the world. And this is why we see the rise of opioids and the rise of suicides and the hopelessness grow across, across so things that we've never, ever seen before. There is a hard truth that students are not being taught, which is life is suffering. Life is very, very hard. We are sinful by nature. Human beings are broken by nature, the belief in original sin. Utopia will never be created. See, students are never taught that hard truth, but we can create a better world. The best way to create a better world is to first improve yourself. It's a, real, it's a very concrete and simple truth. Instead, the universal and the prevailing philosophy on a college or a high school campus is you don't need to improve, but the external is what is wrong. So this is why I encounter protesters all the time that um, I can smell them coming. Let's just put it that way. So that they have a very, um, let's just say, they're, they, they themselves are disorganized. That's the best way I can possibly put it. And they're going and screaming at me about how horrible the world is. And this goes back to this very simple movement in America. If you want to change the world, just make your bed first. Clean up your room. Take care of yourself. Control what you can possibly control. 
So there's two, there's two ways you can interpret the suffering that you're going to encounter in the world or in America, which is you can be a victor or you can be a victim. So being a victor is the Christian story. And we have a victor in our belief in Jesus Christ. But most specifically, Jesus never told us, the gospel never taught us to blame other people for our problems, ever. In fact, we believe in a sovereign God. We accept that bad things will happen to us and we have a way to deal with those things. Instead, blaming the external results in in incredibly unhappy and unsettled people where you begin to protest everything at every single turn. And so we start to see this happen with the steady march and the attack against Christian beliefs in our country. And so during the last 10 years, we have seen our Christian beliefs routinely eroded away. But there was always a promise given by the secularists and by the atheists that don't worry, we're going to agree to disagree. We're never going to tell you how to live your life as long as you don't tell us how to live yours. And generally we said, Okay, sure, now this is proving to be a total lie. Recently, in the last four days, an individual running for the highest office in the land for the President of the United States said that if a church does not, does not allow same-sex marriages to be performed within the church, they should lose their tax-exempt status. So, so now we are going to make you care. We are going to force you to believe the way we believe. Put simply, they're not going to stop at the parking lot outside of this church. They're not going to stop until they can control exactly what is said from this pulpit to all of you. So long gone are the, idea, are, are the days of religious freedom and religious liberty or that you could express. And I'll get back, I'll get kind of to the root causes of all this. So we have a generation that is looking for this meaning and looking for this truth. Unfortunately, the entire school system is now teaching it from a very, very young age to have a disconnect towards the Judeo-Christian fabric that built the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. So let's build this out. There's a Christian trinity that we all believe in, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's also an American trinity, and there's also a secular leftist trinity. These two trinities are not talked about as much. So first, the American trinity. First, let's just appreciate that we are living in the greatest country in the history of the world. We've been given a gift by God that we're able to live in this country with the blessings and the liberties that we have. I am troubled by the rise of anti-Americanism within our own country. I am disturbed that instead of teaching gratitude to students, that we should be kissing the ground and saying, thank you God I live in this country we are teaching anger and resentment that students live in this country students that have don't have to worry about sanitation hygiene or where they're getting their three meals every single day when a majority of the world does all of a sudden there's a built-up resentment for this very country America has made mistakes but America is not a mistake so the American Trinity is three big things, and the founding fathers picked these three things out. It's on our, they're on our currency, they're in our founding documents, and on the presidential seal. The founding fathers studied every successful and unsuc- inevitably unsuccessful uh, just civilization or trial in trying to create a government. The rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the rise and fall of the Greek Empire, Babylonia, Alexander the Great, they studied it all, and they saw one very common denominator, which is that individuals, 
are corrupted by nature, that if you don't have some form of fashion of citizen representative government, that power will eventually corrupt absolutely. But where do we derive that infinite wisdom at its very basic core? Well, the greatest book ever to exist and the most powerful, most important book, the Bible. I'll get to that in a second because as we have removed the Bible from our schools and we have removed the Bible from our culture, we have seen a direct correlation of our culture get further and further away from absolute truths. So the first part of the American Trinity, which is on our presidential seal, anywhere the President of the United States speaks, is the Latin phrase e pluribus unum, which means out of many one. It's the first country and the first civilization ever founded on unifying individuals, not dividing individuals, not on tribalism, but under the verse in Acts 17.26, which says, from one man he made all the nations that they shall inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands, talking about all people are God's children. This is a universal Christian truth. And instead of saying, well, we're going to divide you based on this, it's, it's the idea of unity, e pluribus unum. The second part of the American Trinity is one word, liberty. Now, basically everyone wants to believe in liberty, but it comes with a precondition. You could do what you want to do, how you want to do it, but you have to take responsibility for your actions if things don't work out the way you want to. That second part is a lot harder, by the way. It's a lot harder because people love to have liberty, but not everyone wants the responsibility that is inherent in it. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, 2 Corinthians 3.17, where is the spirit of the Lord, there is liberty. So the founding fathers picked that out and they understood the value and the importance of liberty. Throughout the entire New Testament, one common denominator of all Jesus' teaching is he had an appreciation and a positive ending towards the idea of freedom. Freedom from sin, the breaking of bondage. In fact, he was trying to bring human beings towards that position of liberty, not towards that position of control. And the final thing that is part of the American Trinity, which is on all of our currency, and say, that we say all the time, is the, is the phrase, in God we trust. So this is repeated many times throughout the New Testament, which of course is trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not your own understanding. That is Old Testament, that's in Proverbs, um, but it's all throughout the New Testament, trusting in God, in God we trust. That's the American Trinity. Those very three simple truths are not taught in our schools anymore. In fact, it is given a very inaccurate and misleading representation of how our country was founded and where we, get, where we get our ideas from. So what is the secular leftist trinity? Because there is a trinity and direct defiance of it. Well, it's not e pluribus unum. It's divide and conquer. It's turning people against each other. It's turning the rich versus the poor. It's turning men versus women. It's turning Christians against non-believers, which is what you see is what I just mentioned a couple minutes ago. It's turning all the police versus citizens. It's trying to not talk about unity. It's instead trying to talk about division, which is by definition an anti-Christian belief. You know, Jesus taught us to, to, be, to be understanding we're all God's children. The belief that we must have these inherent factions and these inherent divisions, it's not Christian whatever. It's definitely not in the belief of Western civilization. It's not liberty. That's the American Trinity. The leftist Trinity would talk about control, you can't homeschool your kid. You can't send them to private school. We must put them in the institutions that we deem fit. Like I just said, it used to be, they, they used to say, it's okay, you guys can have your church, just let us have our ceremony. Now they're not gonna stop at the parking lot. They are openly advocating, saying that this institution that we stand in right now should cease to exist unless same-sex marriages are performed in this very 
Chapel. That's an open position now of, the main, of a mainstream person running for the highest office in the land. We were always promised that would not be the case. And the final thing is not in God we trust, it's in government we trust. That's, the key, that's one of the key things, is that they want the meaning, they want the church, they want the place of camaraderie to be government, not to be in, the, in, 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 in God or in our relationship with a higher power. So one of the root causes of all this is how we have removed and we have surrendered the ground of teaching the Bible in our schools. And so one of the false lies that atheists teach time and time again is they say, well, you can't teach the Bible because we need separation of church and state. Now, first and foremost, understand that's one of the most misrepresentative statements is this idea of separation of church and state. But let's even take this at face value and try to build out the argument. First of all, the Bible, before it's a religious text, it is a historical text. It includes the most important person ever to live in the history of the world. Even an honest atheist will admit no person that has ever walked the earth has had more impact on the trajectory of civilization than Jesus Christ. So even from being a fair historical observer, reading the Bible and reading the accounts that are thousands of years old should be included in every single curriculum across the country. It's also a miracle that you have 66 different books spanning 5,000 years telling the story of the rise and fall of Israel three different times. If we're honest about teaching the history of where we came from, we should have no reservations of teaching the Bible whatsoever. The other part is this, is they say, well, we can't have religious texts be taught in our schools. Well, it doesn't need to be necessarily taught as a religious text, but not teaching at all whatsoever is you putting your own atheist state-run religion in defiance of allowing this Bible to be taught. Now you're allowing your religion to actually be the top religion of these public state-run schools. Here's the kind of irony of the entire thing. We teach students about the Greek gods, we teach them about the Roman gods, they also learn from the Quran, they read Homer's Odyssey. Now, mind you, the teachers teach this as fable, they don't teach this as fact. If the atheists actually believed that the Bible was a fable, then why not teach the Bible? Because, put simply, the atheists see a threat within the Bible. They know that where the Bible is allowed to be taught, that people find fulfillment, that they find mercy and forgiveness and they get saved. Henceforth, they can't be controlled any longer. The Bible is a book of liberation. The Bible makes the state and makes government far less important. It starts a vertical relationship with the creator. So taking the Bible out of our schools was an intentional campaign to try to create a generation that will look for meaning in places they will never find it. So ever since the fall of, uh, in, of the garden, human beings in our world is in a state of confusion. The Bible offers clarity in a world of confusion. I'm gonna go into some of these examples of how confused the culture is and how we are accelerating further and further into it. But it's very interesting about the Bible because it is the most well-read, most duplicated, the most respected and impactful book ever to exist. Even an honest secular atheist will admit that but it's also the most banned, the most banished, and the most burned book in the history of the world. No book has been such a center of controversy and fulfillment ever. And if you are taught, I'll never forget when I had a conversation with a historical text professor. His entire world is about teaching historical texts and he was talking about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and how important it was in his historical text class to teach the Greek classics. And I said, well, do you teach the Bible? 
He says, no, I don't teach uh, children fairy tale stories. Mind you, this is a typical professor at a university. And I said, well, it's still a historical text, isn't it? I mean, there are, I mean, you go back to the book of Job or Genesis or, I mean, these are thousands of years old. The fact that we still have copies of it is miraculous. And he said something I'll never forget. His, finally, the truth came out. He said, well, if I taught the Bible, people might actually start to believe it. And that's the root of all of it, is that it's the prevention of people actually leaning in and believing in the holy text and the holy scripture, because they, they see that as a force of light in a dark chamber that they control. If someone is preventing ideas from being heard, they themselves do not stand on truth. So, for example, I'm never afraid to hear the other side. I'm never afraid to have, to have a discussion about any sort, from any religion, anything across the world. Christians typically don't because we have to, we live in a culture where we have to hear things we disagree with all the time. But the second that someone doesn't hold that belief and they might have to come in contact with something they disagree with, they want to silence it and shun it. That's usually a pretty good universal rule that they are not sitting on truth, that they're sitting on a pile of lies. And so just to give you an idea, and so I, I, I do not delve into exaggeration because it, you don't need to anymore. Uh, so I'm going to give you... I'm gonna give you specific examples of how far the culture has gone, what I have to deal with. So just a news update. If you said five or 10 years ago, how many genders are there? Typically people would say there are two genders, male and female, as if there's two sex, chromosomally structured XX and XY. Well, according to Brown University, which is basically the leaders of gender identification, there are 134 different genders right now. Um, this is being taught in our public elementary schools, in our public high schools, and our colleges across the country. So I'm going to specify three. Again, I don't need to exaggerate because it's, it's as outrageous as you could possibly imagine within the curriculum that students are being taught. Now, mind you, before I get into this, when you remove the Bible and you remove universal truth, there is no extent to the confusion or the chaos that these people can cause in a society. There is no extent. So here we go. So one of the genders of someone I encountered with uh, once is called glass gender. It's called a gender that is very sensitive and fragile. The, another one is heliogender, a gender that is warm and burning. Now these are not horoscopes, okay? These are, this is supposed to be, this is, yeah. Um, another is Kyle gender, a Kale gender, a gender which shares qualities with outer space or has the aesthetic of space, stars, nebulas, etc. Um, that one I always found to be very uh, puzzling. So again, the list of genders are growing and uh, there will be no limitations. So when you get away from universal truth, when you get away from, all, from what is well-defined in the Bible, there, when there is no North Star, when there is no guiding principle, they will continue into the abyss in places that we could never have possibly imagined. The more time I spend on a college campus, there's one way I could describe it. It's a community of people that are constantly wrong, but they are never in doubt. It's remarkable. I've never met a people that have never been so committed they are correct, so, so obstinate to opposition, and yet they, they, they are so misguided. It's a place where wisdom is not allowed to flourish. College campuses have become a place where they want everyone to look different, but think the same. Their idea of diversity is skin color diversity, but not ideological or intellectual diversity. My favorite exercise is to go on a high school or college campus, and someone is wearing a shirt that says tolerance and peace, and, 
they, they are talking, they're saying, world, look how good of a person I am. Please look at me. I'm a great person. Maybe they are, and, but as soon as you bring out the Bible or as soon as you talk about God, venom flows about how we are the hatred ones, about how we are the intolerant ones. And students get kicked out of class. They lose friends. They get kicked out of sororities and fraternities. They can get graded down for simply saying, you know, Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Well, that's not very tolerant. It seems as if you're tolerant as long as people agree with you. And so, look, there's a culture battle that we're in right now. And I believe that we are in the most consequential culture war in the history of our country. And I am not, I'm, I'm saying this very firmly, every Christian needs to get more engaged than you currently are right now in this fight. Culture is determined in four ways, four ways. Number one, the most important institution besides the church in the history of the world is the family. The secularists and the atheists have successfully embarked on a 40-year plan to destroy the American family, and they're, 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 they're on pace for success. So going back as far as the thinker Plato to Rousseau to Marx, Plato theorized incorrectly that the nuclear family must be destroyed, that government must be the family. This is nothing new. These are disagreements that went back all the way to, to ancient Greece. Now they take that and they say, okay, the family is something that must be broken apart. Well, how are they doing? Well, the fatherlessness rate in the black community is 74%. So that means only 26% of black youth will grow up with a father in the house, 26%. There's more divorces. The divorce rate out, outpaces the marriage rate. That means the majority of marriages will inevitably end up in divorce. It's, it's tragic. And so we have seen the breakdown of the American family. The one common denominator in our country, the one common denominator that keeps things together is a nuclear family. You need to rely on government less when the family stays intact. People are less likely to dive into alcoholism and drug addiction and suicide when the family stays intact. Joining a gang, committing crimes, going to prison. The bedrock institution that built Western civilization is a strong nuclear family. But they see a big threat with this. They see that as the family remains strong, well, then you might not need government. You see, their entire agenda is to try to grow government and encroach on individual liberty and freedom. So the American family. Number two, the way that culture is determined, very important, which is this, the church. We can't forget this. I'm going to tell you something that might be an uncomfortable um, truth, which is that within the Christian community in America, there is a aggressive and alarmingly successful left-wing effort to corrupt scripture and to corrupt Christian youth. In fact, I find young Christians nationally to tend much further in the, in the direction of socialism than in the direction of free enterprise or individual initiative or individual liberty. So I visited my Presbyterian church that I grew up in five or six years ago, um, and it was really bizarre because I walked in and it felt like MSNBC with organ music. It was, it was, it was a very puzzling I mean, I, I, I must have missed the part in Ephesians that talked about impeaching a president, but somehow they fit, they fit that in there. So it was, it was right, right weaved in. I said, not sure that that's in the gospel, but thank you. And so I find this time and time again that within the, the own church, there is a misrepresentation. And one of the big misrepresentations, the number one lie that I hear is that Jesus Christ was a socialist. I hear this every day. I hear this from students. So let's just get something abundantly clear. The idea of socialism or Rousseauian collectivism happened about 1800 years after Jesus Christ. So 
if you are a Christian, you believe that Jesus Christ was the savior of the world, he actually was very repelled by the idea of government. In fact, he resisted the state. In fact, one would argue, and I would make this argument, he was killed by the state. <laughs> he was killed by government. Jesus Christ was one of the first and most uh, successful free speech advocates in the history of the world. He went places he wasn't supposed to go. He engaged in dialogue and discussion. He embraced people that disagreed with him in defiance of what was the status quo at the time, did so respectfully, did so peacefully, and did so empathetically. And Jesus talked time and time again about helping other people, but he never talked about forming a bureaucratic institution where you take money from other people to go help other people. I must have missed the parable of forcible extraction. <laughs> there must have been a, I, I, maybe, the, maybe it's, Maybe it's somewhere I don't know and pastor, you know, okay, good. So um, where it's do good unto others by finding those that have a lot, taking that stuff, putting it through an inefficient bureaucracy, that person who needs it only gets a small percentage in the end. No, instead it's you individually must sacrifice what you individually have to go help another individual person. It was actually an anti-collectivist Dogma is actually voluntary. It was voluntary. It was voluntarism is what it is. Is that it's a voluntary compact, not through the the idea of coercion that we are going to forcibly take from you that which you have. And I, I look to the parable of the talents, which is the parable of multiplication. And so, some could look at it through an economic lens, or you could look at it just through what God gives you. Try to spread it as far as you possibly can and do as much as you can with the talents that God has given. Now, talent was, the, was not the, what we consider talent today. It was a form of currency, but the word actually has some uh, translation in what we consider a talent to today. So you ask yourself the question, would Jesus be more pleased with a society that sits and does nothing all day long and complains and blames others or one where human beings try to improve themselves and try to do as much as they possibly can with the kingdom with what God has given them and what kind of system would lend itself to it so for example do you think that human beings are flourishing to the highest level of the gifts that God gave you in Cuba or Miami Florida well it's not even a question because in Cuba, human expectations are lowered, their freedoms are limited, and people are not allowed the, ca the capacity to flourish. In fact, mediocrity is the norm in those sorts of societies. Whereas the parable of the talents, for those of you um, that aren't as familiar, essentially, Jesus talked about how there is an individual, I don't remember if it was a slave owner or if it was a master, essentially someone who had three employees, the equivalent of employees, and gave them all equivalent uh, rations or distribution of talents. So gave them all $5 essentially in, in modern day equivalent. And they, one person put it under a rock and did nothing with it. One person moderately multiplied it and the third person bountifully multiplied it. And the response from the employer or the owner was condemnation of the person that hid their talent or their currency under a rock, moderate approval of the person that did moderate multiplication and total approval of the person that multiplied their own personal gift from God. So you must ask ourselves, what is the system that maximizes human flourishing? Well, it's the system that Western civilization has allowed to be created, a one that respects natural rights, a one that allows individuals to have different ideas, and yes, the ability to fail and the ability to succeed. And if you look at the scriptures, it talks that God made all of us different with different talents and different gifts. 
So an idea that we must conform altogether to one size fits all centralized planning is antithetical to some person might be better at piano, one person might be a better carpenter, one person might be better at starting a business and someone might be called the ministry. Only freedom and having the humility that we're not going to be able to program the most amount of people possible and tell them what to do, that allows people the maximization of flourishing. And so you put all this together, so the, the, the second part of the culture war is the church, and the third part, which is very important, which is the lines of communication, or how we convey our values through news media and through stories. And so news, the news media is heavily slanted to this atheist, secularist direction. It is uh, constantly trying to erode people's trust in the church and in faith, and trying to question the authenticity of the Bible, which is interesting. Never has there ever been an archaeological discovery in the history of the world that invalidates a singular letter or word in the Bible. In fact, news that won't make it on CNN and won't make it in the New York Times is that almost monthly in Israel, there are archaeological discoveries that further authenticate the Bible. In fact, there was one three months ago, and you probably didn't hear that on network news. Instead, you hear about how uh, people should stay away from the church, and somehow that's a, a, a better thing. So the lines of communication, but the second part of that is if you show me the stories that a culture is telling, I will show you where they will be, where they will be in 10 years. So we went from just very basic television that all of you can understand, leave it to Beaver and the Munsters in the 1960s, which praised the nuclear family and talked about voluntary cooperation and talked about going to church. Munster was, was a funny spinoff of it, but it was the same sort of thing. There's a mother, there's a father, there's discipline, there is order, and, and young people must go through maturity. Or in the 1990s, we had Full House, which was kind of a silly show, but it talked about even more than that. It went to the extent that you need an extended family to take care of each other. And that was, I mean, again, it, but the end of every Full House episode was what? Reconciliation was some belief that you put, to, uh, you put aside your differences and it, it landed the plane, if you will. Well, what are the shows that we teach students today or young people today? Well, it's Modern Family and Desperate Housewives. Brokenness, disorder, they have this rise of reality television that glorifies hookup culture and is vehemently anti-Christian. You show me the stories that, you're, that we're teaching young people, 10 years from now, I'll show you exactly where we're headed. So that culture war that's happening right down the street here in Hollywood is pushing forth this self-glorification, anti-Christian, anti-Western civilization agenda that makes people say, oh, sure, I, I can indulge whatever I want to do. In fact, it's cool not to get married. Who needs to get married anymore? And this goes into another falsehood that needs to be addressed within our culture, which is the dangers of third-wave feminism. So third-wave feminism, essentially, teach, it's much more about hating men than empowering women. Make no mistake. A society needs strong men and strong women equally together. Right now, we see an entire agenda of a guilty until proven innocent paradigm that is created around how young women view young men. They teach a false promise to young women in college that you do not need to get married at all. You never need to have kids and just pursue your career endlessly. Now, for some people, that might be the right choice. That's perfectly understandable. But generally, the rule is that is not correct. It's not. And it creates an entire generation of young women that are 28 to 35 that are very unhappy and they ex exercise on unhappiness in a variety of different ways because human beings are meant to be together. 
that this idea that you must grow separate and that's, that's the, always the way it is, is, uh, is incorrect. And that also as a bifurcation of that creates a generation of essentially very misguided and weak men. And you see that in a variety of different ways where men have no, no direction and they're trying to look for, for hope in a broken culture. And the fourth thing of which I, the way culture is determined is through education, is through high schools and through colleges. And so I would make an argument that it's up there as the most important. And I've actually seen test cases of how it can be even more important than the family and the church. So I'm sure some people in this room have seen someone grow up in a strong Christian family, go to a strong Christian church that was nurtured for years, and they go off to college and they come back someone that is unrecognizable. It almost invalidates the 18 years of, of pouring into that person. And because colleges are really, really good at this. So here's how it works is you have, you know, this uh, Susie Smith, who's a mom, and she's so excited her kid is going to Stanford, so she picks up the, she, she packs up the Chevy Suburban and drives up to Palo Alto and checks the kid in for the freshman moving in uh, day, and she kind of ignores the fact that the girls' dorms are next to the boys' dorms, the rooms are right next to each other, and they all share one bathroom. She kind of ignores all that. She says, oh no, he was raised, you know, it's all going to be fine, and then the kid comes back home for Thanksgiving, and she said, you know, hey, great to see you, we're so excited to have Thanksgiving. And the kid says, well, it's actually Indigenous People's Day. It's not Thanksgiving. And we have nothing to be thankful for. And uh, did the turkey consent to being killed? Because I don't know if that, I'm a vegan now, and this is exploitation. What about the turkey's rights? I mean, really. And then you go to pray, and they say, well, I'm an atheist, and Christianity has, and all of a sudden there's someone like, who are you? And I've seen, I'm sure some of you have seen this happen time and time again. So the universities can invalidate those other strong cultural institutions that exist. And that's where I spend my time. And I will give you a point of optimism in closing here, which is I find students are increasingly curious instead of combative to the message that I'm sharing right now. My biggest challenge, my biggest obstacle is the administration and the professors. Uh, if I reach students, I'm able to at least give them some form of nuance or moderation or at least tone down some of their radical hostility towards our worldview. It's a problem of exposure. Professors and administrators do everything they possibly can to try to prevent what I just talked about to be put into the public square. If you are trying to prevent ideas from spreading, you are not confident in your beliefs and you are very terrified of having those beliefs cross-examined. And that's exactly what a college campus has become today. And so for, for all of you out there and Christians, we have to understand this, is that the secular leftists, they're winning, and they're winning at an alarmingly high pace. And whatever in your involvement it is, increase your engagement in this, because we all have a call to do something about this. And that something might be, okay, I'm going to get involved in a school board race, or that something might be, I'm going to make sure that everyone in my circle is well-educated about you know, the foundings of the country or the Constitution, or I'm going to clear up some misconceptions around these certain issues. And I'm, I'm currently very troubled because the disengagement traditionally, not this church, Rob, but the, the traditionally disengagement from Christians that attend church regularly is alarming. And what more evidence do we need that our way of life and our worldview will be put in jeopardy if we do not stand up decisively against it. It's no longer, oh, we're going to live our life and they're going to live their life. They're going to make us care. 
It's now at the force and the boot of government that they will not rest until they take over this pulpit and that we conform exactly to what they believe and how they believe it. So we have such a great blessing to live in this country. Um, I believe that the lack of teaching gratitude to young people is one of the major reasons why we're in the position that we're in. When you are thankful for something, you want to protect that something and you want to fight for that something. Instead, we teach resentment to students towards America. You should be thankful, not angry that you live in America. And that's the message I bring every single day. And I am confident that if we all stand up and do our part, we will be successful. So thank you so much. I, what's remarkable is this is uh, an individual that when I gave him uh, a time limit, he actually adhered to it. <laughs> and I usually give someone a time limit because they're going to go over. And so we have time for a few questions. Uh, now, let me qualify that. I'm not interested in you standing up and bloviating. A question is a question. It's not a worldview with a question at the end. I'm a council member. I know what that's like. <laughs> All right? Simple question with a period at the end, brief, because there's a number of folks who'd want to ask questions. And I'll begin. I'll show you how to do this. Charlie, how has the altruism of the church been taken advantage of by the secular left that has caused us to not engage in the culture? Sure. You know that is? Do you see how that works? Okay, go ahead, Charlie. So, uh, un unfortunately, the left has taken advantage of the generosity and the benevolence and the goodwill built within people that attend church. There is a, f the biggest false narrative is that if you care about people, if you care about helping the least of these, which we all do, therefore government must do it and we must increase the size and scope of a bureaucracy to help those people. I believe firmly, and I think we need to say this more decisively, the best way to help people is not to give them more government programs or take more people's stuff and misappropriate it. It's voluntary associations of the church or charities. In fact, I make the very bold statement that if all government assistance disappeared and it was left on the church's shoulders, the church would step up and make sure that every single person was taken care of for the welfare, for housing, urban development, for healthcare, you name it. And I believe Christians will step up when people are in need. One of the most troubling examples of this, just so everyone realizes, we are the most generous country ever to exist in the history of the world. Our country gave away $600 billion voluntarily to charity last year. $600 billion. That's something that should be celebrated. That's the combined GDP of all Eastern Europe that we voluntarily gave away. And by the way, it's probably even more than that. That doesn't count taking a friend out for breakfast or giving someone $20 more to make ends meet. Uh, Americans have a culture and an ethic to help people because that is built on the Christian ethic. However, this is not a guarantee. Europe has no charitable backbone whatsoever anymore because as government grows in its posture and its stance in the public policy arena, people say, oh, government's going to take care of that. I don't need to give my money away. Government's going to take care of that. And in fact, it creates a disconnect between the people that need help and the people that want to give help. In fact, we have a faceless we have a faceless part, we have a faceless help right now in America where an individual will receive a check from the government 
and has no connection with the person that is actually giving it. I make the argument that when people are helping people, morals can be better conveyed, accountability measures are put in place. Instead, when you just get a check from the government, it's a very transactional relationship where people then start to think this is always the way it should be and they don't understand who's actually pouring into that. And so I think that we need to be more decisive, more declarative that the church should actually be and filling the place of the welfare state in this country. So if we gave away $600 billion voluntarily, imagine how much Americans would give away if there was a huge call to action and the church was called to do even more. The combined welfare in this, the welfare state in this country is well over $1.6 trillion. I know know to my core that the Christian community would step up and make sure every single person is taken care of if they're in need. In the book of Acts, I already got two questions. I'll work it in a second. In the book of Acts, it says that the, uh, the folks uh, laid their, their treasures at the feet of the apostles, and then they gave to those who were in need. And I think how you answered that last question, because that's the verse that uh, pastors teach in relation to socialism for the church. But again, it was individual volunteer they did it willingly and it wasn't enforced by the state. Sure. It's such a great point. And I try to explain this because it, it, the, the, the false choice that is presented is the only way to help people is to take other people's away at coercive extraction and then redistributing it. Thank you. And instead, the way that the Bible talks about is how you do it in this church. You have a voluntary way to give as you exit and it's called on each individual to do that. Someone can come here and decide not to do that and they have that choice. However, if you don't pay your taxes, then you will go to jail. It's that simple. So that's not voluntary. Um, that, is, that is coercion. Right. Um, and then we had a question. Uh, why you're, you know, it, it, the, the, it, in Timothy it says that um, the law is a school teacher to point us to Christ. And so as you contend on these campuses with these principles uh, of the Lord, which cover from Genesis to Revelation, an understanding of how then shall we now live, uh, do you find that these kids become hungry for the Lord in the process of that? Have you seen kids come to you? Oh, absolutely. And I, I find students that considered themselves atheists for years and they come back to the faith because of the work that we're doing. So when you walk away from the Lord and you walk away from the teaching of Jesus Christ, you might feel good for 60 to 90 days, but inevitably you will be very miserable and you are looking for some form of moral order, eventually students will, will seek that out. And so they see a movement of our students or what we try to portray where we have very built out truths because there is a text to rely upon of why we believe what we believe. As the culture gets more and more confusing, as people get more and more unsettled with the direction we're going, we're seeing a tremendous, like almost a, I think we're primed for another revival in this country. I really do believe that, so I really do. Uh, in your estimation, the strongest churches, uh, or excuse me, the strongest Christian universities that are still faithful to uh, the cause of liberty, but more importantly, standing true to the word, and you know, the, the accusation I get is, be, I'm too political, I don't preach the gospel, but the idea is there's no disconnect. It's not either or, it's a combination of both. Tell me the universities that are doing that. Is that was the question? Well, in general, for the majority of universities, True to that. Christian universities. No, no, there you go. No. So the majority of Christian universities are the biggest challenge we have. Yeah. 
Uh, Liberty is great. Hillsdale is great. There's a couple others. I don't want to make that a complete exhaustive list at all. But um, specifically, I will say the Jesuit schools are some of my biggest challenges. Um, where and that's that's a whole different conversation for a different time. But uh, and that's not a bash on Catholics. That's just there was a woman in the earlier service who said her daughter got kicked out of a class at a Christian university for saying there were only two genders at a Christian university. It was her so, son. Uh, her son. Yeah, so I don't want to assume that I don't want to assume that person's gender. So <laughs> Well, I will. All right, uh, question was how can uh, folks partner with you locally? Oh, thank you. You so love we, that question, don't you? So we have uh, chapters all across the country. I believe we have a turning point group locally here. Uh, at least not too far, and if people are interested in doing that, you know, we're more than happy to have that conversation, but this is a growing national movement. It's student-focused. If you have students that have any predisposition to this, there's a variety of different programming available, and look, we tell students this. If you just want to get a good grade, just, just say what the teacher wants you to say. If that's the most important thing in the world, but if you want to stand for what you believe in. You might get a lower grade. You might get kicked out of class. You're going to lose friends. I make the argument that standing for truth at a young age, far more important than getting a good grade. But if getting a good grade is the most important thing in the world, then, then that's, that's it. But yeah, so. Uh, question was rise of fascism. Uh, what's your concern 20 years down the road? Yeah, I mean, I, we have security here. Uh, almost everywhere I go and everywhere I'm publicly announced, uh, I'm followed by left-wing mobs that uh, are very violent. And you could check out my Instagram or my Twitter for evidence of this. I've been stormed out of breakfast places. I have been followed through the streets. Um, interestingly enough, I'm still looking for conservative Antifa. It doesn't exist on our side because we're, we are decent and they're that. Um, but look, they... There's, there's a rise of violence against people that are saying what I'm saying. And again, we are, we, I'm saying the general we, if you believe in freedom and you believe in Christ, we're so decent, we're so just grounded, we, we, we just kind of turn the other cheek and that's fine. I'm not saying that's the incorrect thing, but um, it's, it's increasingly dangerous uh, for, for us to be doing what we're doing. So, you know, we have to spend six figures on security every single year and, um, you know, that's, uh, that's just part of the game. And we want to thank Covered Six for providing security. Yeah, thank they you. showed up. And yeah, thank you. I'll try to remember all these questions because I took them from the back. The first one was How do you feel about um, um, a national draft to have young people uh, serve the country like they do in Israel? Would that be something that would be helpful? Yes, I, I've advocated for this. I think that there should be um, a mandatory one year. Uh, service, doesn't have to be military service, with no, at no access to cell phones, where students at age 18, uh, no matter what, you don't get any exemption, you don't get any, I don't care if you're a genius, you have a great business idea, I think you, you have to go and do community service in Detroit or do, you know, we have plenty of problems in this country. We don't need to send, you know, there's problems in the world, but boy, do we have problems in this country. And you have millions of 18-year-olds that have been programmed in the Snapchat and Xbox generation. They have to go forth and they have to talk to people from across the country and empathize with them with no cell phone for 12 months. Um, I'm a very big, firm believer. I get a lot of pushback from people on it, but I think we're in such cultural chaos. One of the few things that could possibly save this is people actually talking to human beings again. And I'm afraid that we're getting away from that far too quickly. Um, and again, I, I've seen it work wonders in Israel. I, I 
meet these 18 or 19 year olds in Israel and boy, do they have direction. They have love of their country. They are, they're, they're just, it's a wonderful example of yeah. that. So, uh, And if I recall, the question was, um, what curriculum does Turning Point USA teach to um, help the kids survive on campuses? Yeah, so we, we teach just the basics of free enterprise, the origination of natural law and natural rights, why the Constitution is the greatest political document ever written. So we give students the intellectual ammunition to be able to defend these positions and where these ideas actually originally came from because they're not being taught that in our schools whatsoever. And uh, so we have a variety of different ways that we, we convey that. And very, put very simply is that there are big three thinkers that kind of created modern day collectivism, uh, Plato, Rousseau, and Marx. And there's big three thinkers that kind of created uh, or contributed to the advent of the individual or freedom, uh, and that would be Aristotle, Jesus Christ, and John Locke. So those would be the big three. All right, and then we have two more questions because we're limited on time. The second one, as I recall, was according to Proverbs, raise a child in the way that they should go, that when they're old they won't turn from there. Uh, It's according to their bend. And you have, you know, it was alarming. You had folks that have maybe homeschooled their kids, uh, they have taken them to church, mm-hmm. they poured into them, now they're going away to a university, and you, you kind of scared a number of people, and they're, they want, they want. what would you do if it was your child, and you've yeah. poured 18 years of, you know, foundation, I, I think I'd know the answer from my perspective, don't send them to a school that's going to ruin them, but sure. go ahead. So, though the first question, the first, and this is just like more Baylor. of a, yeah, this is more of Liberty. a, Liberty, yeah. go ahead, I'm sorry. Okay. So, so this is more of a cultural question is, um, I think we have way too many people going to four-year college in America. Uh, I think that we have overly glamorized the institution. Um, the, the, na- the national graduation rate is 59%, so that means 41% of students we cart off to college will not graduate. It's okay to take a gap year, go to the military, go to two-year technical school, community college, or just kind of figure out where you want to go and go straight into the workforce. This, this lie that we teach students that you have to go to college to succeed, it's not supported by data, and it actually creates a highly divisive society. And so even beyond that, you'll find a lot of you kind of fall into this trap. Ask high school seniors, why are you going to college? Not where are you going to college? All of us, we ask, where are you going to school? Where are you going to school? It creates this false cultural expectation that if anyone dares say, oh, I'm not going to college, they're considered stupid, less ambitious, and not likely to succeed. None of those things are true whatsoever. So that would be my first answer. I am a huge believer in gap years. I think especially young men, more than even young women, need a year after high school to go see the world and just kind of get a reset before they go tens of thousands of dollars into debt to go study how horrible of a country we live in. And so, no, so that's basically what it is. We have a generation of people that are studying things that don't matter to go find jobs that don't exist. So. I, would, I would add to that as a 55-year-old father of five and a grandfather of three. You'll be there someday soon. I would, I would add to that that it's not a year to go find yourself. That's exactly Maybe right. Maybe go serve somebody for a year. The, the idea is, uh, watch a Mike, uh, Mike Rowe video. Phenomenal. Uh, this idea of, of, you know, follow your, your passion. No, no, no. Go work hard and carry your passion with you and, and do something. Uh, the idea of being productive. So uh, all that's in there. We'll get some more time in there. And then the last question, I, I really liked it because it, it, Calvary Chapel, our eschatology is pre-trib, pre-millennial. We believe the next thing on God's day planner is the rapture. And we've had a number of folks throughout history with this eschatology in the latter 18th century run up debt and go wait on a mountain for the Lord to take us. And, and it's, it's a wonderful eschatology for evangelism. 
and that's why Calvary Chapels is at 10,000% growth. But one of the things we've seen is apathy, that we're not planting trees for future generations. We, we can't see into the future because we just think it's all over, and Satan's going to win. We're polishing brass on the Titanic. Um, help with that mindset that the church is just almost giving up. How do we combat that? Yeah, it's a, it's a question I get quite a lot, and so I... I, I I don't think there's ever an excuse not to try to preserve what you have to the next generation. I don't think, I don't think it has to be binary in believing that God might act with immediacy. Therefore, that gives us a license to not preserve what we have. In fact, and could, advance it. I'm sorry. And advance. Yeah. It. So I mean, you could quote the scriptures much better than I could, but it's not supported by the Bible that you're given a license to not care about the next generation or what you have just because you believe God might intervene at any time. And I'm not saying that's what being said, but that might be a subtext of some of the behavior. And so, look, what the left is much better at doing than we are, the secular left, is that they are building long-term infrastructure to be able to advance their agenda. And the church has been a wonderful example of this. That's why, like a healthy host, a virus tries to get within it. Yeah. And they're trying to spread it very, very quick. And so, look, I, I, if I was not optimistic, I would not be doing what I was doing. And I wouldn't be traveling the way I am or speaking where I am. But we are, it's, it's, it's a going to be a struggle. And we can win and we will win because we have truth and we do actually still outnumber them. It's just enough Christians need to rise up and be very firm in why they believe what they believe and hold the line. Amen. Their biggest fear, their biggest fear is that the American church actually wakes up. And they actually laugh. They laugh that it hasn't happened yet. They are, and, and if that actually happens, um, there's nothing that can stop us. 